0: Hello and welcome to Mayway's Chinese Medicine Matters podcast, where we share traditional Chinese medicine news, research, and topics relevant to TCM practitioners and students. I'm Lauren Kaufel, and in today's special episode for Chinese Medicine Day, which is every March seventeenth, the president of Mayway Herbs, Yvonne Lau, will go over. The History of Traditional Chinese Herbal Medicine in America.
1: Here in the U.S., we tend to think of March 17th as a celebration of Irish heritage, but it's also a significant day in Chinese cultural history. In February of 1929, the China Central Health Department held a conference in Nanjing, the capital of China at the time. Dr. Yunnan a physician who had studied Western medicine Japan and head of the department, proposed that old medicine, meaning traditional Chinese medicine, as opposed to the newer Western medicine, be abolished. All existing traditional Chinese medicine practitioners would need to be registered and get trained in Western medicine in order to continue practicing at all. Medical care in China moving forward would be Western medicine using Western drugs only. At the time, not only was there no licensure, but most TCM practitioners were without formal schooling, usually learning lineage-based diagnosis, acupuncture techniques, and herbal medicine through ancient texts and apprenticeships. Only a few technical or specialty programs for TCM existed in the entire country. Understandably, this proposal caused an uproar among Chinese medicine practitioners, their patients, and the Chinese medicine industry such as it was at the time. The abolishment of TCM would essentially deny affordable, primary medical treatment for literally millions of people. China already had a population of over 450 million in the 1920s. It would also discard and delegitimize a cultural treasure that was both a philosophy and a medical tradition that had been in continuous study and use for millennia. A meeting was called in Shanghai on March 17th to discuss this shocking proposal. Hundreds of stakeholders and representatives from all over China gathered to find a way to protect this vital part of Chinese culture and healthcare. care, and a counterproposal was made to preserve and modernize traditional Chinese medicine by officially including TCM schools in the educational system, establishing provincial-level TCM universities, and establishing a means for practitioner licensure. After many months of lobbying, the counterproposal was adopted And eventually, March 17th was designated National Medicine Day, or Chinese Medicine Day as it's called here in the U.S. In 1956, four top-level TCM universities were established. The TCM universities of Beijing in the north, of Guangzhou in the south, of Shanghai in the east, and of Chengdu in the west. Their presidents were personally appointed by Premier Zhou Enlai, cementing the status and importance of TCM in China. TCM practitioners became licensed, TCM departments and hospitals were established, and standalone TCM hospitals were built. Today, close to 90% of China's 1.4 billion people use traditional Chinese medicine regularly. Its value has been proven repeatedly through the decades by Western science, and its practice thrives in many other parts of the world, including here in the U.S. I hope you enjoyed this short history lesson, because now I'm going to share another. Asian-American history, especially Chinese-American history, is a favorite subject of mine. As a kid, I didn't fully appreciate growing up in an herb shop, but as I learned more about how herbalists and herb shops were integral to the Chinese community in America, I feel grateful to be part of its history and want to share with you some of what I've learned. Chinese medicine has a long history here, even before we Chinese ever set foot in America. During America's colonial period, Chinese tea and herbs such as rhubarb, cinnamon, cardamom, and camphor crossed the ocean to the New World, just as Apalachi and wild ginseng went east. White Americans learned about traditional Chinese medicine not only through the herbs they consumed, but also through European and American merchants, missionaries, and medical scientists who went to China, studied, and sometimes adopted Chinese therapeutic practices. In fact, by the mid-1700s, the Bencao Gangmu. The famous 16th-century Chinese pharmacopeia had already been translated into English. Americans of this era already relied on plant-based medicines, so Chinese herbs weren't strange at all. In the 1850s Gold Rush era, Chinese immigrants came to America in significant numbers and of course brought their health practices with them. Every immigrant brought some herbal medicine in their luggage. The herbalists who came, like most other 19th-century Chinese immigrants, were almost exclusively Cantonese people, so Southern Chinese, from the Pearl River Delta areas. By this time, white Americans were accustomed to consulting with non-white healers, whether Native American, African, or Chinese. When I think about it, this might have been one of the only interaction points that was more pleasant and less tinged with racism. Many Chinese practitioners became famous and well-respected by whites, and over time, ordinary Americans learned to associate Chinese medicine with magical healing powers. Herbs were imported by Chinese merchants, some of whom were Chinese medicine doctors themselves, and many became very wealthy and leaders in the Chinese community. They also sold herbs to their fellow practitioners across the country. Those herbalists outside of cities primarily served small Chinese communities that sprang up in mining camps and along the route of the Transcontinental Railroad, treating the Chinese workers and even some whites. You can read more about and sometimes even visit the preserved clinics of famous frontier doctors like Dr. Ying He of John Day, Oregon, and Dr. Yi Feng Zhang, who treated out of his Chu key store of Fiddletown, California. Especially in these far-flung places, herb shops were often the center of Chinese immigrant life. They not only provided medical help, but likely served as the general store, the post office, the bank, and even the place for community worship. Unfortunately, when the easy gold mining dried up and the Transcontinental Railroad was finished, whites struggled to find work. Generally keeping to themselves, whether by choice or in reaction to prejudicial hostilities, the Chinese became scapegoats when menial labor became the only work available. Chinese had always received less pay for the same work, like toiling in fields or fisheries, and had been willing to do so-called women's work, like cooking and laundry. But now we're resented for, quote-unquote, taking away jobs from whites. Racism and resentment became rampant. Chinese communities all over the country were burned down, people were beaten and driven from their homes, and often murdered. Survivors mostly fled to the safety of the larger Chinatowns, like in San Francisco. This discrimination was so prevalent that in 1882, Congress passed the first in a series of Exclusion Acts, effectively stopping immigration from China. This is still the only set of laws in U.S. history to target the people of a specific country. These exclusionary laws only allowed certain types of Chinese to come to America. The wealthy, diplomats, clergymen, students, and a few others. This gave rise to human trafficking, especially of women for prostitution, and caused a subsequent decline in the Chinese population in the U.S. This lasted well into the mid-20th century, which profoundly affected the makeup and society of the remaining Chinese population. A consequence was the so-called bachelor society that was created as tens of thousands of Chinese men never again saw the families they had left behind in China. These discriminatory laws also affected and reduced trade, making many herbs difficult to get to the point that many Chinese herbalists began growing them themselves and searching for equivalent native herbs. Like most people in small businesses, Chinese herb shops struggled during the Great Depression of the 1920s. Chinese, along with other Asians, were relegated to the bottom of society and continued to be discriminated against when it came to work of every kind. Fortunately, the clan, Mutual Aid, and Benevolent Associations in Chinatowns provided enough assistance to protect their residents from starvation and legal help in applying for government aid. Although Chinatowns generally began to prosper in the late 1930s because of the end of Prohibition and a boom in tourism, mid-century wars in Asia further disrupted supply lines, making it difficult to restock herb drawers and shelves. During World War II and the Cold War, America recruited scientists, including biomedical doctors, through new immigration policies and educational exchange programs. Refugees from China in the 1940s and American-born Chinese began to pursue careers in licensed medical professions rather than practice traditional Chinese herbal medicine. As the American Medical Association came into prominence, pushing forward its Western science on the regulation of the medical marketplace since the Progressive Era, confidence in alternative therapies was eroded, and many Chinese herb shops shuttered their businesses during this time. With the lack of immigration and the low number of Chinese women in America, Chinese communities in most small towns dwindled and then vanished as their populations died off. Even in Chinatowns with second and third generations of American-born Chinese, these children mostly did not continue the family or businesses. Although the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act had been repealed in 1943, visas for Chinese immigrants were still limited to about 100 per year. It wasn't until the signing of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 that a fresh wave of Chinese immigrants came to America and revived communities as well as the business of Chinese herbs. Our parents opened their herb shop in 1969 after their own immigration journey. At the time, most of the other herb shops in San Francisco Chinatown were run by very old men. When we were kids, only a few herb shops had a second generation working in or running them. I remember Superior Trading Company, the Great China Art Company, and Taesong Tong, all located on Washington Street. Sadly, today all three shops no longer exist, being unable to enlist a third generation to keep the family business going. In the 1970s, a countercultural backlash to Western biomedical hegemony, warming relations between the US and China, a seminal article by James Reston of the New York Times helped popularize acupuncture among American patient consumers. The licensure of acupuncture in Oregon, Maryland, and Nevada in 1973 and then California in 1976 helped to support the growth of the acupuncture profession, which relied heavily on treatment with herbs. Although a growing number of the acupuncturists were white, many became expertly trained in the use of Chinese herbs. Chinese herbs were imported almost exclusively through Hong Kong until the mid-1990s, and Chinese herb businesses were still predominantly owned and operated by Cantonese. Another wave of Chinese immigrants in the 1990s, including OTCM doctors from China, heralded a renaissance in the use of traditional Chinese herbal medicine, leading to a wider range of herbs and patent medicines being imported into the U.S. The use of patent or proprietary herbal medicines in pill, tablet, and capsule form had grown since the 1980s because of their convenience and as more medicines from China, Japan, and other parts of Asia came into the market. Significantly, in 1994, the U.S. FDA passed the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act, or DSHEA which defined and regulated all dietary supplements, including Chinese herbs. Interestingly, today the multi-billion dollar U.S. dietary supplement industry uses about 95% of the Chinese herbs imported into the U.S. Commonly known Chinese herbs such as astragalus root, lyceum fruit, now popularly known as goji berries, and licorice root are marketed as dietary supplements rather than as traditional Chinese herbs. As usage by the public has increased, There have been incidents of adverse events from wrongly prescribed and misidentified Chinese herbs that have led to the FDA restricting or even banning importation and usage of certain herbs. Issues of sustainability, such as endangered species, and safety, such as herb-drug interactions, heavy metals, and pesticides, have also developed that pose challenges to the industry. Today in America, traditional Chinese medicine is widely accepted as complementary to Western allopathic medicine with over 30,000 licensed acupuncturists in practice across the country. Thousands of peer-reviewed research articles from around the world attest to the value of TCHM in treating disease and benefiting human health. In 2015, millions of Chinese around the world watched with pride as Chinese researcher Dr. Tu Youyou received the Nobel Prize for her research of a Chinese herb in treating malaria. Through it all, Chinese herb shops have weathered the ups and downs of history and have persevered. A younger generation, mostly made up of recent immigrants, have taken up the mantle in Chinatowns and in smaller Chinese enclaves to provide familiar remedies to an aging community. Although the use of Chinese herbs has declined among younger American-born and immigrant Chinese, Chinese herb shops still exist across the U.S., and herbs and herbal products can be found in Asian grocery stores and Western natural health retailers. Chinese herbs can now also be easily purchased online treating health in even far-flung, remote places where maybe a Chinese mining camp once thrived. As the popularity and accessibility of traditional Chinese herbal medicine in America continues to evolve, it is heartening to see how this ancient medicine, once used solely by an outcast, disenfranchised people, has come to finally be embraced by its adopted land. To hear our own Mei story, how we started our family herb shop in San Francisco Chinatown, and my own recollections of growing up in the family business, please listen to my podcast from August of last year titled The Mayway Story, An Immigrant Family's Journey. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for tuning in. If you would like to read about the history of traditional Chinese herbal medicine in America, you can find the written article linked in the episode description. And please subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support and to hear when our next episode comes out. In our upcoming episode, Dr. Sky Sturgeon will be going over his I Ching reading for spring. Until then, take good care of yourself and your patients. Chinese medicine matters, and so do you. Hi everyone, Lauren here again, wishing you a happy and healthy May. As many of you know, Chinese Medicine Matters is the podcast of Mayway Herbs, a TCM online store and dispensary where practitioners can ship directly to their patients. This month on Chinese Medicine Matters, we're focusing on women's health. We'll explore a wide array of topics related to women's health at different stages of life. So stay tuned for informative episodes you won't want to miss. And we're excited to offer a special discount on our Women's Health Formulas category the entire month of May. Practitioners use code WOMEN24 at checkout on Mayway.com to receive a 15% discount. And remember to sign up for the Mayway Herbs newsletter for exclusive content and ongoing promotions. The episode description includes a link to sign up. And thanks again for tuning in and supporting Real Chinese Medicine.